We're going to be in Psalm 73 this morning. The Psalms are traditionally broken up into five books, and uh, you'll probably see it in the Bible in front of you. Psalm 73 is the first psalm of what is called Book 3 of the Psalms. It's written by a man named Asaph, and we know from 1 Corinthians 6 that Asaph was a Levite. Uh, He was one of the men whom David commissioned to be in charge of the worship in the tent of meeting before Solomon's temple was built. Now the words of this psalm, as, as, as many of the psalms were used as sort of the, the hymn book for the Israelites, this would be sung as part of their worship. It would help shape and form their understanding of the world, of God and themselves. And this psalm deals with real issues as scripture does. It deals with our experience of living in a broken and sinful world. And it deals with things that God's people have often struggled with. And if you haven't yet, trust me, you will. It deals with the seeming incongruity of God's fairness with how the world works. The discrepancy between the suffering of the righteous and the prosperity of the wicked. The psalm comes from a place of faith. It's anchored in God's truth, while at the same time it grapples with these incongruities. It asks the question, how are God's people to make sense of a world that seems upside down? Now, over the past several years, and maybe this is nothing new, but I've noticed it more and more, we've seen an increasing number of those from within the evangelical world uh, flaunt doubt as if it was a virtue. Uh, This often comes in the form of questions that challenge the motive of God, things like, if God is really good, how could he let this happen? Or, if God is really loving, wouldn't he allow this? Or statements like, the God I believe in wouldn't do this, this, or that. And what we see is often these conversations start with doubt, and that doubt helps frame the conversation, frame the reflection, and what we often see then is the end result is more doubt and often a deviation away from truth and often even the faith. What I love about this psalm is this psalm helps us see how to grapple with doubt well. And this psalm, it does not start with doubt, but rather it starts from a place of faith. It shows us how to wrestle well with the truths of Scripture and the disorienting experiences of, of living, in life, living life in a broken world. And it shows us how to maintain our faith even as we a- ask hard questions. I think that's important. How do we maintain our faith as we wrestle with our experiences, as we wrestle with doubt and these disorienting experiences? How do we come back to a place of faith? And this psalm helps us do that. So as you hear this psalm, Ask yourself where you might be tempted to believe false narratives about God. Uh, And these narratives might come from experiences. They might come from perceived uh, incongruities in the way that you think life should work. And as you think about that, see how God meets us in our confusion and disorientation with truth and with clarity. So I'll ask if you're able, would you please stand as I read from Psalm 73. Psalm 73, it's a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, Violence covers them as a garment. 
Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues stretch through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray. God, as we look at this psalm, would you convict us with your truth? Would you allow us to reflect on our own experiences that cause us to doubt and wrestle with what is good and right and true and who you are and who we are? And through your word and through your spirit, shape our minds and our hearts that we would see from your perspective, that we would look to you for guidance, and that you would build our faith and our trust in you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Many of you know that uh, I have gone back to school over this past year and will be uh, pursuing uh, a doctorate in uh, educational studies, particularly in organizational leadership. Uh, It's really fun, it's really nerdy, um, but I'm enjoying it. And uh, one one of the, the, the consequences of doing this is I'm having to read a lot of books I wouldn't otherwise read. And uh, a lot of the literature uh, that I've read this past year had to do with how adults learn and then consequently how organizations learn. And it, it's really interesting in, in most of the social science literature on how adults learn uh, that these theories, uh, all the different theories, they usually have some sort of aspect of a disorienting dilemma that is key to adults learning. It's a, it's a catalyst that causes us to rethink things. Uh, It makes us stop and consider what we believe to be true. We have to weigh the current evidence that we see. We have to seek new information. And then we have to decide how to reorient what we now believe and how we now want to live in light of what has disrupted the status quo before. Now, this can be as simple as having to learn um, what you can substitute for vegetable oil when you're cooking because somebody forgot to pick it up at the grocery store. That never happens to me when I walk in and John, I was like, so did you get everything? I'm like, yep, except for the very thing you asked me to go to the store for. So what do we do as adults? Well, you do what everybody does. You go to Google and you look up a YouTube video. What can you substitute for vegetable oil? 
And then you've now learned this disorienting dilemma of are we going to be able to have this thing we wanted to have? Well, now we have learned. It can be as simple as that. It can also be as intense as being confronted with a scary diagnosis or having some sort of personal tragedy in your life. And, and, and that's everywhere in between the, the vegetable oil and this tragedy. Uh, we learn primarily through having disorienting dilemmas or events challenge the status quo of what we have uh, believed. Or we've re- we get come to a place where our knowledge about a particular topic is limited and we now have to learn to be able to move and grow. Now we have two, we have two options when we uh, experience these disorienting events, these dilemmas. We can go in one of two directions. One, the event can become what's called miseducative. It actually educates us in the wrong direction. We actually learn the wrong thing from that. Uh, it, can be, uh, it can stunt our growth of further knowledge. It can lead us to believing wrong things. Uh, we can actually choose ignorance, to not learn. And it ultimately, it moves us away from growth and maturity. It becomes miseducative. The other option is this. It can lead to new learning, to new perspectives, and a reorientation toward truth and growth and maturity. Now, what I've said just comes from the social science world, but it actually reflects common grace revelation about human beings, about how we have been created in God's image, how we learn, how we grow, how we change. And we see that in this psalm. And if we're honest, think about the times that you have learned the most. Think about the times where you have grown the most. It's not during the times when things were easy. It's not during the times when everything went the way you wanted it to. God, in his kindness, as part of our sanctification, our growth, our maturity, God uses these incongruities, these disorienting events, these difficulties, these tragedies, these hiccups, to make us stop and reconsider life, to ponder, to reflect, and to then learn something new. In God's kindness, he inspired Asaph to write the psalm for the covenant community so that our faith can be built up and more firmly established through our disorientation. This psalm points us toward that new growth, that learning to see things differently. And not just horizontally from my own perspective, but this psalm points us to get a new, to gain a new perspective, a vertical perspective, one that only comes from the one who has created us, who sees all things and superintends all things. Great pastor and author Martin Lloyd-Jones in commenting about this psalm says, it's as if Asaph is telling God's people, I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you what happened to me, but the thing I want to leave with you is just this, the goodness of God. And that's exactly what Asaph is doing. Asaph is telling the covenant community, here's how I wrestled with this. But what I want you to take away from this, I'm going to begin with it, and I'm going to end with it, is this, God is good. And that's where we'll start, with that statement of truth. And we see that this whole psalm begins with that statement, God is good. And then he qualifies that statement to whom? God is faithful, or God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. The statement helps frame the entire psalm. It's the lens by which the psalmist is going to view his experiences. Ultimately, this is the starting place for us Christians. We start with who God is. God is good. Now, this can be a generic statement about God, kind of describing his just blanket goodness and how he blesses us and how he protects us and how he delivers us. In this instance, it's a very specific statement about how, how it is God and his fundamental trustworthiness 
that allows us to stand firm amid turbulent and disorienting events. Do you hear that? ASAP is anchoring us in a truth. God is good. And we need to stand on that solid footing because you're going to be shaken to the core here in just a minute. That's what ASAP is doing. His goodness is that foundation that we can stand on when everything around us is shaking and moving. Now the word heart is used six times in this psalm. One commentator says, the state of the heart determines whether a man lives in the truth in which God's goodness is experienced or in the semblance of truth where the fact that it goes ill with him is confused with the illusion that God is not good to him. What he's saying is this. The state of our heart, what we believe about God, is going to influence how we then view those things that happen to us that we would not say are good. Our belief, our starting point about God will help drive the narrative of how we view those experiences. Our orientation toward God matters. Israel, the the, the pure in heart, are those who are in covenant relationship with God God's goodness is bound to his covenant faithfulness to his people. And this pure in heart description, it's a description of his people, of their disposition toward him. They are totally committed to him. God is good to those who are his, who are committed to him, and it has a a moral aspect to it. It's worked out in our obedience to him. The pure in heart, that, that demonstrates not just what's on the inside, but it has an outward working in how then we live and exist through our experiences. Derek Kidner, in his commentary, says the phrase pure in heart is more significant than it may seem. For the psalm will show the relative unimportance of circumstances in comparison to attitudes which may either be soured by self-interest or set free by love. Do you hear that? This phrase, pure in heart, shows Our experiences are not what really matter in terms of determining how we react. Our attitude is what matters. And our attitude can be soured when we turn inward and toward our self-interest and how we view these experiences from our own perspective. Or we can be set free by the love of God and seeing it through his perspective. Our disposition toward God matters. Because we all know we will encounter times of doubt We are going to, and maybe you are there right now today, we will encounter difficulties. What we believe will shape how we view these things. I'll give you an example. If I believe John L., my wife, loves me and is for me, it will determine how I hear her when she challenges me or criticizes uh, something I've done, right? And if you are married, you know what I'm talking about. And if you have a friend, you know what I'm talking about. If you have a parent or you are a parent, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, If I fundamentally believe that she's against me, that completely changes how I respond and how I view the interaction, right? Uh, Think about this. So if if this afternoon, if I go home and say, hey, give me feedback from the sermon, and if I'm at a healthy place and I'm trusting that she loves me and is for me, she could say something like, hey, I thought you did well. Here are some things you could improve. Healthy Tim, believing that she loves me, would hear that and say, Thank you, wife who loves me and is for me. That's hard to hear, but I want to take that and reflect on that and grow from that and become a better person so I can be a better pastor, a better husband, a better father, a better friend. Thank you. Unhealthy, tired Tim 
might choose to believe something other, that she's not for me, she's against me, she doesn't like me, she thinks I'm a horrible pastor, a horrible husband, horrible father, and when she says the exact same thing, hey, I thought you did well, I hear some things I think you can improve, my response would be something like this, oh yeah, well, you can improve. <laughs> oh yeah? I've got some improvements, I've got a list, right? What I choose to believe about her in that moment will influence how I respond to those difficult moments. We know that to be true. The same is true for us with God. What we believe and what we let shape our assumptions about God matters, right? It's why it's important that Asaph starts this whole psalm with this, God is good. Because that is about to be tested with his experience of what he's looking as he observes the, the, the seeming unfairness of the way that God's world is operating. And so in verses 2 through 15, this the first, almost the first half of the psalm, we get a look into the descent into his doubt. In verses 2 through 3, Asaph describes what it was like to wrestle with the conflicting narratives of God is good, but the wicked prosper while I suffer. How do those align? How do those work together? And he said it was as if, as if his feet had almost stumbled, his steps had nearly slipped. Many of the Psalms compare delighting in God and in his law to walking on a path. We see this in Psalm 1, Psalm 119 and others. Uh, walking on that path of following after God. And Asaph shows how his envy of the wicked nearly caused him to lose his solid footing and his orientation of delight in the Lord and his law because of what he was experiencing and seeing. This is how it often happens for us. We let our experience dictate what we believe. Our circumstances begin to shape our understanding of reality. Uh, one thing you need to know about me is I love uh, reading about new cars. Um, it doesn't necessarily show in the cars that I drive, but I like learning about the new technologies. I love learning about the design. I love reading about the, the, the balance between uh, a car's functionality and its fuel economy. I love learning about how all these new technologies are coming with all these new ideas uh, with cars. I love it, and I'm always thinking about what car would I want if I had to get a new car right now, what would I get? And what I notice is the more that I research, the more I begin thinking about new cars, I begin seeing new cars everywhere. The, the very car I'm looking at, now I see it, like every stop, I mean, there it is again. There it is again. There it is again. I, for whatever reason, I really like the Kia Telluride. And I tell you, when JD got a Kia, I started seeing that everywhere around town, and I, <laughs> I love it. I love that car. But now I also notice that everything in my news feed on my social media is about that car. I also notice that I'm starting to get ads about low interest rate car loans, although they're not as low as they used to be. But, and all these things are now working to frame what I'm thinking about and what I'm de- th- uh, desiring. And the more I begin to think, this would really make my life better if I had that car. The more I begin to plot and strategize about the feasibility of buying that car. Now, I currently don't have a loan on my 10-year-old family sedan, which is a fine car, And not having a car loan is a good path to be on, but it doesn't take much for me to begin to deviate from that path as my heart is shaped by envy, greed, discontentment. Now, things like cars aren't necessarily bad. Like, it's actually a very helpful tool to do life in this world, in this country. But when we begin to dwell on them and believe that that having them will actually bring us joy and satisfaction, we've made good things ultimate things, 
right? We have now replaced what we can only get from God, and we have now said, this thing, having this thing or this relationship or this situation, that is what I need to be happy. We've now made good things ultimate things, and our hearts become shaped by empty promises. They become idols, worthless things. What we dwell on will begin to shape us. And for Asaph, his envy of the wicked was shaping his heart and was causing his sure footing in the Lord to stumble. In verses 4 through 12, Asaph describes this experience. Now, we read this earlier, so I'm not going to read it again. But I want to give you a summary of what he's saying here in verses 4 through 12. Just some general observations. He's basically saying this about the wicked as he looks out. He says, They have no physical problems. Their bodies are well fed. They have no trouble. They boast in their pride and seem to be rewarded for it. They are assertive in their arrogance. They are callous in their dealings with others. They seem to get away with their wickedness, and rather than there be consequences, there seems to be a reward. And even they mock God and seem to get away with it. They live as if there is no God, and in the end, what happens? They are prospering. And we get the summary statement in verse 12. They are always at ease and they increase in riches. Two things I want to see from that. There's a lot in there, but two things that we see very front and center with Asaph is envy and exaggeration. And envy, look at that. Asaph has allowed his heart to be drawn to the allure of temporary prosperity. He has been seduced by the lie that joy and contentment are found in our circumstances. And he allows himself to envy those that God calls the wicked and arrogant. He has been seduced by the lie that joy and contentment are found in things and material prosperity. Spurgeon, in commenting about this, says this. This is a great quote. He says, It is a pitiful thing that an heir of heaven should have to confess I was envious. But worse still, that he should have to put it, I was envious at the foolish. His eye was fixed too much on one thing. He saw their present and forgot their future, saw their outward display and overlooked their soul's discomfort. An heir of heaven, if you are a child of God, what you have in store for you is heaven and all of the riches and inheritance that comes from being a child of God. Nothing is withheld from you. You might not get it all now, and we don't. But he said, it is a shame for an heir of heaven to envy those who get stuff now that you don't have, knowing what is yours in the future. He said, because all you're doing is looking at the outward appearance. It looks like they're happy. They have what you want. But what you don't know is their soul's discomfort. Because what we know is that no thing, no situation, no person can satisfy what we truly need apart from Christ. We look, but we don't know that those things even are not bringing them joy and happiness when we envy we allow our heart to grumble against God and his providence in our life we allow ourselves to believe the lie that God is holding out on us that somehow our joy and fulfillment would be fuller if we could just have the desires of our heart if I could just be in control of how God doles out blessing and I was a recipient of all of those then truly I would be happy that's the lie of envy How about exaggeration? Did you, did you, when you heard this psalm, did you hear the exaggeration that was going on in this uh, lament over the prosperity of the wicked? And that summary statement, 
they are always at ease. He's basically saying everything is great, they have no problems. It's a little bit of an exaggeration, right? Maybe a big exaggeration. What happens when we speak in the absolutes, the alwayses and the neverses? We, we, we miss it. We, 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 we miss any nuance. We miss context. We begin to believe things that aren't true. You always do this. You never do what I ask. Well, it's just not true, right? I mean, there's probably sometimes I don't do that. There are probably sometimes I, I do what you ask. It's just not true that always and nevers are never helpful, particularly in relationships. Because the absolutes just aren't true when we say that. Except for this. Except for the lights in my house. The lights in my house are always on in every room at all times of the day. In fact, you could see my house from space at night because my family loves to leave the light on and just create stress in my life. That is true. My lights in every room, every place at all times, those are always on. But that's the only always and never that is absolutely true. But I'm sure if you were to talk to my wife, she would say, how is it that Tim's dirty socks always miss the hamper and end in the corner of every room always in our house? That also is maybe the other exception to the rule. But when we do this with God, we, we run the risk of slandering his name. God, you never come through. You never answer my prayer. You always bless them, not me. When we absolutize these things about God, we are close, and I think we actually do slander God's name. Because what we're really saying when we say that is this. God, you are untrustworthy. You are unfair. You are unkind. You are not good. The very thing that Asaph is trying to remind us of. No, God, you are good. And in verses 13 and 14, Asaph comes to this wrong conclusion based on this envy-saturated musings. He says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. What is he saying there? He's saying this. It's been a colossal waste of time trying to be righteous and do what's right. All I have to show for is hardship and pain. And I'm envious of those who don't have the same moral restraints as I do. Have you ever thought that? Why do they get to have all the fun? As Christians, we can also often be envious of the way that the non-believers get to live because there is not the same moral constraint. They do not have that same conviction that we do of how God has set up his law for us to live, which is actually good for us. But if you remove the perspective that God is good and these are for us, we can say, man, I tithe my money. And if I didn't tithe my money, you know how much extra money I would have to do the things that they're doing that I don't get to do because I'm bound to this? Or, man, they get to have fun every weekend, both Saturday and Sunday. And what do I have to do? I have to go to church. Well, Man, if we believe that God is out to get us and wants to squash our fun, that's, really, that's a narrative that helps reinforce that. But if we say, no, God is good, and what is good for us is actually being with his people, and what is good for us is actually saying, my money is not mine, but it's the Lord's, and we give freely so that we can accomplish God's purposes, it helps reshape that. So what you believe about God absolutely matters when you wrestle with envy and exaggeration and doubt. 
And verse 15 shows the consequences and the folly of envying the wicked, of allowing a temporary circumstances to dictate our eternal perspectives. Asaph said, he's starting to realize, he says this, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Up to this point, the doubt and struggle have been internal for Asaph. He's been wrestling with this internally. And the question he poses here is this, what would the consequences be if my internal struggle became so solidified in doubt that it became part of my public narrative about God. Because we're all going to wrestle. But he's saying, what would the consequences be? What would the ramifications be if what I'm struggling with, I, I, I dug in and said, yeah, God is bad. And it's not fair. And he began as a leader of God's people to, to, to publicly say that and to, to put that narrative out there. Well, it would be miseducative for God's people. It would lead them to believe wrong things about God. It would sow doubt. It would shape and form God's people in the wrong direction. And as he said here, it would have a lasting generational impact. When we let false narratives about God become solidified in the narrative of God's people, it would impact not just my own heart, but those that come after me. Asaph understood his responsibility as a leader of God's people. He understood that how he wrestled with these things mattered. And it matters how we do as well because we all struggle. We all have doubts. We all have to wrestle with the incongruities of life. But before we begin to let those doubts and struggles shape us and take root, we need perspective. We need to stop and reflect. And that's exactly what Asaph does. That brings us to 16, verses 16 and 17. This is the pivotal section of this psalm. Asaph is at the place of a disorienting dilemma, Right? My feet had almost slipped. I'm looking at the way the world works and it just doesn't seem fair, God. He has the opportunity now to go in one of two directions. One of immaturity or one of growth. And he does something that is very important. He stops and reflects. He changes the gaze of his eyes. From dwelling on the prosperity of the wicked, he now turns his gaze toward God. That's a really important switch that happens here in the psalm. Look what he says in 16 and 17. But when I, had, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Wrestling with these incongruities can be exhausting. It can feel overwhelming. But where do we go with that? we go into the sanctuary of God, into his presence for perspective. Now, uh, that term, that, the phrase sanctuary of God, uh, Calvin believed that this was a description of reflecting on God's law, which was contained in the sanctuary. Others believe that this describes Asaph actually entering the, the sanctuary into the tent of meeting, uh, where all the symbolism and all the elements of worship and sacrifice would have reminded him of God's holiness, of man's sin, and of God's provision for sinful mankind to actually be in his presence. Most modern commentators believe that it's a combination of both. That it refers to reflecting on who God is through how he has revealed himself. Primarily through his word. And for Asaph, it would have also been through the types and shadows of the sacrificial system. For the Christian, as we reflect, we also have God's word. And more than types and shadows of the sacrificial system, we actually have the substance of what all that pointed to. We have Jesus Christ. Our reflective practice as Christians is centered on a person. 
When we try to make sense of an upside-down world, we have the gospel of Jesus Christ as the lens by which it can all make sense. It's why what we reflect on matters. If we just look to ourselves and our experiences, we will miss out on the greater process of deep learning, of godly growth, of maturing in wisdom. Now, reflective practice is not unique to Christians. You think about the, 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 the words that are used in our culture now for reflection. Uh, the buzzwords uh, used to be kind of meditation. Now, the, the big buzz, buzz, uh, buzzword is um, mindfulness, right? But what we reflect on matters because if in my meditation, in my mindfulness, in my reflection, if all I'm doing is going inward to find truth, I, that's a very limited perspective. Very, very limited David Wells says this in, in one of his books. He says, where reflection has been reduced simply to reflection upon the self and where the hard work of relating the truth of God's word to the processes of modern life has been abandoned, there, once again, theology has died and all that is left of it is an empty shell of what that wisdom used to be. When we abandon going to God's word for perspective and we just turn inward, all that is left is an empty shell of wisdom. Because it just is going off of what I think and what I know, which is very skewed, very biased, and very limited. And when we stop the practice of going to God's word and being reflective individuals, we are cutting off the very source of life and truth that we have. When we experience disorienting circumstances that make us question the way the world works, we need perspective. As we come up on the fall here, there are a ton of corn mazes, right? Uh, every now and then, the, the larger corn mazes actually have places in the middle where you actually get up on a platform or a bridge and you can actually see over the corn to see where you've gone awry. And here's how I actually get out of here. Those are really important for me <laughs> as I try to figure out how to get my family out of this maze before it gets dark. If we only turn inward, it's like trying to get out of a corn maze and never having the above perspective and just going dead end after dead end and just trial after trial of trial and error. But when we reflect on God's word, we get above and we see how it really is and it gives us a path for wholeness and for help. We need to rise above our own perspective and we need to look to Jesus because it's only in him that we see clearly. You see, the gospel is where we see the divine answer to the injustice of the world. The, the scope of God's justice is not limited to the here and now. God has eternity in mind. On the cross, when Jesus died for our sins, he secured for us a place in eternity. The promise for God's people is not that this life is going to be easy, but rather that God prepares a place for us with him in the new creation. And this is far greater than riches and ease in this life. We know that but for a time the wicked will prosper. The rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. But the resurrection of Jesus is the guarantee of divine justice for the believer that we only see in part now and fully we will see in eternity. And although Asaph didn't know that full story, he knew because of the scriptures, he knew he could trust God in that. And that leads to the reorientation of how he understands his dilemma. By reflecting on God's truth, by rising above the confusion of his experiences, he's able to stop and discern and reorient himself towards truth. What does reflection look like for you in your life? We need to be a people who are reflective and use the scriptures and the means of prayer that we have to reorient us in a disorienting world. And I will tell you this, our culture is not setting us up to be reflective people. We are a culture of distraction. 
TV is always on, radio or your iPod or, you know, what, iPod, how old is that? <laughs> so sorry, your iPhone <laughs> is on. Wow. Um, you think about social media, all it does is there to get you to, to, to indulge and consume more in very short attention bursts. We are not set up to be reflective people, and as Christians, we need to regain that, to get quiet and to reflect and to sit in God's presence and say, God, what do you want me to know? How do you want me to be? And as Asaph does that, he comes to a reorientation toward truth. And real quickly, that just the last section of this psalm, verses 18 through 28, Asaph gets a new understanding of the reality for the wicked. He understands, oh my goodness, what I didn't take into the equation is this. Their ultimate end is judgment. And he says here, their true slippery place. If you look at verse 18, truly you set them in slippery places. Remember how he started? I was on a slippery place. My feet had almost slipped. He said, the true slippery place is this, being in opposition to God. They might have their moment of prosperity and power, but their destination is destruction. And then he has a new realization of his own foolishness. He says, when we become embittered toward God, our outlook becomes skewed and our ability to understand the truth is hindered. In verses 21 and 22, he uses a word about himself that I was ignorant, I was like a brute. The literal meaning is I was dim-witted. I didn't understand, I couldn't see it. And when he says I was like a beast, in the Hebrew, that's the plural form of this word beast. And when it's used in in a plural form, It actually suggests a a big sort of monstrous beast like a hippopotamus or a huge crocodile. John Goldingay in his commentary says this, So the psalm confesses that bitterness and hurt generate an attitude to God that has the stupid, pretentious, clumsy aggressiveness of a demonic monster, like a big, gangly, aggressive hippo. That's what we're like when we become embittered towards God and his providence. And then in 23 through 26, we get this new perspective of prosperity of the righteous. He says this, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. It's a remarkable statement based on his earlier envy of the wicked, isn't it? He's saying, I don't have all this, and they do. And now he says, there's nothing I desire besides you, God. He's able to say, God, you are enough. He's able to echo Job's sentiments when Job said, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Having been reoriented to truth, Asaph is able to see that the true blessing is not in temporal prosperity and happy circumstances. Rather, true blessing is being known by God and included in his eternal inheritance. That's why in verse 26 he can say, but God is my strength and my portion forever. And that leads him to the conclusion of the psalm in verses 27 and 28. Resolved trust in God's goodness. He restates what he knows to be true. The wicked will perish and the righteous will endure Goodness is not found in our circumstances, but rather by being found in God's presence. Goodness is found in God's presence. And this can only be true because of God's ultimate goodness to us in the gospel. Go back to the beginning. When he says, God is good to Israel, to the pure in heart. Who is the pure in heart? None of us. (laughs) Not me, not you. Only the one Son of God, Jesus What do we deserve? We deserve the same fate as the wicked. Verse 27 says, You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Who does that describe? Every single human that has ever lived apart from Jesus. Jesus was faithful on our behalf. 
We are only pure in heart because Jesus was pure and he has given us his righteousness. Jesus, Jesus suffered the punishment of the wicked. He endured that destruction and judgment of the wicked for our sin so that we can claim the inheritance for the righteous. For those that trust in Jesus, it is truly good to be near God. For those that don't, nearness to God means terror, condemnation, and destruction ultimately. I want you to hear this from 2 Corinthians 4. Paul says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We will experience the frustrations and disorientations of this life every day that we live. And this psalm encourages us to start with truth, wrestle faithfully with the implications of the brokenness of this world, reflect on God's truth and his kindness to us in the gospel, and reorient ourselves with a solid resolve to rest in God's presence. And then we can say with Asaph, but for me, it is good to be near God. Let's pray. God, we're thankful that we have psalms and scriptures in your word that help give us a model to navigate this, the disorienting experiences that we have in life. You, you show us that this is a common experience for your people to wrestle with the incongruities of, of who prospers and who doesn't and who suffers and, and who gets blessing. And yet we know in the end, in your economy, it is through Jesus and Jesus alone that we can see rightly in an upside-down world. Would you help us be a people who reflect on your truth, are reoriented in that truth, and then live out that truth as we bring glory to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.